Hi, I'm Sebastian King. I'm a paediatric surgeon at the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne. Today I have the great pleasure of sitting down and talking with Professor John Hudson. John is an esteemed paediatric surgeon known internationally for many things, including his clinical skills and the many textbooks that he's written. Today we'll be talking about a topic that is very well known to him and that he's an expert in. In this session, John and I will be discussing the assessment and management of boys born with impalpable testes. The important thing is to work out, was there ever a scene or reported to have a testis in the scrotum where, it was now, where it's now missing um, earlier in life? Because if the, if the record, the neonatal uh, record reports that a testis was seen or um, you know, recorded by palpation or, or vision to be in the scrotum um, at birth, that means it's quite likely what we would call a vanishing testis, which has disappeared, and the testis was probably ischemic already at birth, might have already been dead, but it hasn't completely disappeared yet, and then it quietly undergoes atrophy, um, and then by the time they present at 6, 12 or months or beyond, there's no testis. Um, and the vanishing testis can be diagnosed by the history that there was a... Somebody said there was a testis in the scrotum before, so that tells me it was there before and now it's gone. And the other way I can tell that it's disappeared is that the remaining testis in the scrotum is usually bigger than normal. Um, and the way you tell how big it is, you don't need an orchidometer because the size of the testis when you've got two is roughly the same size as the gland. So all you have to do is look at the penis and ask, is the testis you can see in the scrotum, is it roughly the same size as the glands? Mm. If it is, then it means there must be two. If it's bigger than the glands, it means it, it's undergone compensatory hypertrophy. There's probably only one. Yes. And in terms of your um, tricks to be able to, you know, you've been sent this child with an yeah. impalpable testis, how do you confirm in your own mind oh, that, yeah. that so it truly I'm asking, is an impalpable? OK, so I'm looking to see, can I see compensatory hypertrophy of the remaining the contralateral testis, and then I'm palpating in the groin um, as carefully as possible, because you need to remember when the testis is undescended, it's still inside a peritoneal um, um, pouch, processus vaginalis, and it's on a mesentery, the mesorchium, so it's actually mobile. Uh, people kind of imagine that just because it's undescended, it must be stuck in the groin. So medical students often think the testis will be stuck, physically stuck, not moving, when in fact it's actually in a bag and the bag's stuck, but the testis is moving inside the bag, so you're looking for a moving target. So I'm feeling around in the groin, asking, can I feel anything moving in the groin, roughly the size of the tip of your little finger or the size of the glands that might be the testis? And if I can't feel anything at all, I'll then ask, can I feel the external inguinal ring open or shut? Because if I've got no triangular defect in the external oblique aponeurosis at the external ring, then it tells me that the testis never came through the external ring if it's closed. If you can't feel a gap, um, which in a baby, in a fat four-year-old or a two-year-old is quite difficult if they're very chubby, but in a baby's easy. So I'm asking, you know, when we're three months or six months of age, can I feel a gap in the external oblique aponeurosis, the external inguinal ring, 
because um, if I can, then I know the testis will be just inside the ring, even if I can't feel it, it'll just be in the ring, just inside, inside the canal. Um, but if it's, if I can't feel a hole in the external ring, then it means it's either in the abdomen, right inside the abdomen, has never come through the inguinal canal at all, or it's not there at all, it's missing. And so what's your process of consent then for the families if, oh, yeah. you, if you haven't been able to feel that, that Okay, testis. so it depends on when we're talking about impalpable testis, depends whether we've got one or two. If both testes are impalpable, then I need to make sure we haven't got a disorder of sex development. So it needs an urgent pelvic ultrasound and probably some hormone levels to see, make sure we've got some hormones or we might even need some chromosomes to make sure we've got a boy. Because yep. one of the very rare presentations for bilateral impalpable testes is actually a girl with a adrenal hyperplasia, uh, CAH, with very severe virilization, so severe that it looks like a boy but with no testes. Yep. Okay, so that's very rare, yep. only seen twice in my career, but possible. Um, but more than likely it's just unilateral. And, but even then, this is the one time when a, when a, a uh, scrotal and inguinal and a pelvic ultrasound might be worth it to see, can you find anything that might be the testis? Mm -hmm. So when I've got an impalpable testis, um, very often they've already had an ultrasound, mm -hmm. so I don't have to organise yeah. it. Most of the time the ultrasound's a waste, but this is the one time when it's useful. Um, but mostly I'll be telling to the family that what we're going to do at the procedure, because uh, we're going to go straight to surgery in effect, I'm going to do an examination under anaesthetic to ask, can I feel any tiny remnant, which might be a shriveled up testis that was hard to feel when the child was awake because everything's moving. When they're asleep, it's a bit simpler. Um, if I can't feel anything in the groin or in the scrotum, which might be a shriveled up testis, often the size of a, a, a grain of wheat or a pinhead, if I can't feel anything at all and the external ring is closed, then I'll do laparoscopy and ask, can I find a testis? And the answer will be yes or no. And if I can't find a testis, at least I can make sure that there's no intra-abdominal testis that I'm going to leave behind by accident. Um, I can reassure to the family that they're not going to represent with a testicular tumour when the child's 15 or 25 with an intra-abdominal testis that turns into a tumour. And so what are the clues, when you put that laparoscope in and have a look at the deep ring, what yeah. are the things that you're looking for? Yeah, I'm looking for the testicular vessels. Yep. Because um, you can't have a testis without tes with a blood supply. So I'm asking, can I find the testicular vessels? I'm not looking for the vas, because you can actually have some rare variants of the anatomy of the embryology where the vas is originally part of the mesonephric duct, the wolfian duct, which becomes attached to the testes, but the mesonephric duct was originally the, the ureter of the middle kidney, the mesonephros. And then when the mesonephros disappears just before sexual development in the embryo, the mesonephric duct then becomes secondarily attached to the testis. But occasionally it doesn't become attached to the testis, even though it might be formed. The testis might be formed, the mesonephric duct is formed, but they don't get joined. So you can have some rare variants where you can have a testis separate from a Wolfian duct 
In other words, the vas and the testis are not connected. The vas or the epididymis are not connected. Um, epididymis being the lowest most point of the Wolfian duct, okay, mm. when so it's attached to the testis. Mm. Um, so if it's not attached to the testis, um, you don't want to, it's not finding a blind ending vas that matters, it's finding blind ending vessels. Because if we've got, occasionally when the testis is truly, you know, uh, absent, congenitally absent, there'll be no testicular vessels at all, and then I'll have to roll the, the colon out of the way by dividing the peritoneal reflection of the left or right colon and then go right, roll the colon right out of the way and go right up to the renal bed and ask, can I see any testis or vessels uh, in the renal bed mm. right beside the kidney? This turns out to be a bit more common when the kidney's missing mm. than when the kidney's normal, yep. okay? So, but mostly, when you get look in, you look the external ring. You might see the the you might see the vas. The vas might look like it's disappearing through the internal ring, but the vessels are just just coming out from below the colon. And instead of going into the internal ring like they should, if it was a normal testis in the canal or beyond, um, the blood vessels just fizzle out, and there's just a little little, tim little li sort tendrils. of little you know sort of splayed out sort of collaterals of little tiny vessels at the end of the testicular artery where it's shriveled up and that tells me the testis was present and then it's undergone secondary infarction we think caused by torsion of the testis just after it's descended in the last few weeks before the baby's born. And so do you go, if you see that, yeah. do you go to the groin then to look for that nubbin or do you no, leave that No, it's a waste. It's nearly always in the scrotum. Mm. Um, there's lots of, there's a really serious argument in the paediatric urology literature about whether you need to do that. Mostly it's triggered by American doctors trying to find an excuse to do an operation rather than actually needing it. Because mm. if the testis, because why does it happen at all? Remember, the testis has to migrate to the scrotum. How does it do that? The gubernaculum, the little... Um, mesenchymal structure, originally the genitoinguinal ligament ends in the inguinal abnormal, abnormal, abdominal wall. It comes out through the abdominal wall, which will become the external ring. And then it physically migrates across the pubic bone into the scrotum. And it doesn't just push the, the subcutaneous tissue out of the way. How does it get there? It actually makes enzymes which dissolve the extracellular matrix, the collagen and the fibronectin and all the other stuff, so that when you, if you ever operate on a baby where the testis is still descending, which occasionally might happen in a baby, a pre premature baby, you'll find the gubernaculum under the skin, but it's completely loose. It's not attached to anything. So it's making enzymes to make it, make the space. So then it can elongate without having to push the subcutaneous tissue out of the way. Um, but then when it gets to the scrotum, it stops making enzymes, and then what does it do? It starts making collagen so it can become attached to the inside of the scrotum, okay? But then there's this magic window when it's arrived in the scrotum, but it's now loose in the scrotum. Remember, it's not attached to anything at all. And all that, ha all that has to happen to cause torsion is the foetus has just got to 
flick the leg and bump it. And it's so loose inside of the scrotum, it can spin around, literally spin around. Okay? And the next thing you know, it's twisted so tightly, it's compressed the testicular vessels and it kills the testis. And of course, when does that happen? Uh, just before the baby's born, because it's, by the time it's arrived in, uh, uh, in the labour ward, mm. uh, it's become attached to the inside of the scrotum, but for the few weeks before it was still a bit loose. Um, and of course, while it's loose, it's at risk of twisting and of course torsion two weeks before the baby's born, even though it's painful, nobody ever knows. No. Although I have had, I remember one mother where this had this story, we knew the child had vanishing testes, and I said to mum, can you remember anything ever happening a few weeks before the baby was born? And mum said, I remember. Oh, it was about Saturday two weeks ago. The baby, the fetus was really, really restless. So can mum could actually yeah, tell you the day that it twisted, because the baby became very, very distressed in the uterus, because you couldn't hear the screaming, um, but mum could tell the baby was really restless because it was jumping about yeah. inside the uterus, and then two weeks later when it was born, the testis was dead. So two more questions about impalpable testes. Um, if you pop that laparoscope in and yeah. you see that the testis is a good size and it's sitting at the debinguinal ring and can easily move into the canal, yeah, right. do you opt for a one-stage or a two-stage procedure? This is a good example of, of, of you know, choice in, in surgery. And the choice is not related to anatomy very often. It's mostly related to the personality and the training of the doctor. Yeah. Um, for me, I might do a two-stage operation, but if it's right at the groin, right at the internal ring, it'll probably be perfectly OK to do a one-stage procedure. And most doctors have recognised that you don't need Robert Fowler's operation the so-called Fowler-Stevens operation, where you divide the testicular vessels first and then come back six months later and do the second stage, the orchidopexy, once the testicular uh, vessels, mostly coming from the artery to the vas and some from the cramasteric artery, have enlarged enough so you can... The test is still alive and you can move it um, um, with the blood supply not being under too much tension. Um, you don't need that unless the testis is one, two or three centimetres from the internal ring. And what about the situation where there's obviously been infarction and death of a testis on one side? Yeah. What's your approach and recommendations around fixation of the, of the contralateral or the opposite testis to prevent torsion it's later on in life? Torsion when you've got an ordinary intravaginal torsion where the mesentery of the testis is too long is classic in an adolescent boy when the testis enlarges when you're 13 or 14 and then he just gets it bumped when he's playing footy because um, um, the testis is in such a loose, so loose inside the tunic of vaginalis on its mesentery it can be spun around. Um, that's a fairly rare anatomical variant but otherwise well described, nearly always bilateral but not always. Um, but ask yourself, is that very common in a baby? And the answer is, it's so uncommon that when it's been occurred, they've mostly been reported, which mm. is actually quite rare. So I think this is actually a really rare variant because most uh, 
prenatal or perinatal torsions um, occur one, two or three, maybe four weeks before the baby's born. And by the time you know about it, which is the day they're born, or a few weeks later when they get to see me in the clinic, by the time they're six weeks, as I said, the, the gubernaculum will be making um, collagen to make anchor the outside of the tunic of vaginalis to the, to the inside of the scrotum. That'll happen immediately after it's arrived in the scrotum. By the time you're two, four or six weeks, it should be stuck to the inside of the scrotum and you don't need an operation on the other side. And the only indication for an operation is a panic attack by the parents. You don't... So if you can keep the parents calm that they don't really need that, then my personal view, it's a waste. Because when you do the operation, you don't need to because it's already attached to the inside of the scrotum. It's not loose anymore. Yeah, not sitting there. So I think that's probably enough for today. Thank, Thank you very you. much for your time, John. Um, and we look forward to the next session.